welcome. It is so good to be back in West Tennessee among the good folks of Carroll County. Um, I appreciate all of the prayers and support for those of you that were praying for us and uh, following our adventures on Facebook for the last couple of weeks in the Holy Land. Um, uh, someone was there asking me after we were finishing our tour, and they said, well, Brother Jacob, what is visiting the Holy Land going to do for your preaching? And someone immediately retorted from the other side of the bus, make it 15 minutes longer. And so this morning, I'm going to try to spare you from that, but it was a wonderful trip. I hope to tell you more about it um, in the days ahead. Um, but this morning, we're going to continue our sermon series on the foundations of faith. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 6 um, as we continue uh, looking at the importance of regular spiritual habits in our lives. Now, we've, we've been narrowing our list of spiritual habits to those that we see um, in the life of Jesus, these spiritual habits that Jesus himself engaged in, walking in fellowship with the Father, keeping in step with the Spirit, um, going out day by day to spend time in God's Word and in prayer and in worship and in service to others. And so we are trying to understand how we can be more like Jesus. That is the point. We are trying to build our lives on the foundation of Jesus as we live our lives engaging in the same spiritual activities and habits with which Jesus engaged. And so, um, as I've argued over and over again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep arguing it until you can repeat it after me. There will be a test. Um, the point of all of this is that Jesus practiced certain spiritual habits and modeled them for his disciples to follow. And so we're not simply called to believe in what Christ has done, though that is essential and eternally significant. We are also called to live as Jesus lived. And that's so important. If Jesus, Jesus lived in the closest relationship to the Father of any person that's ever lived, and so we need to live as he lived in his relationship to the Father and to others. Now, in my last sermon, we, we looked at, some, we looked at the, the prayer that Jesus had taught his disciples to pray, okay? The, the model prayer, all right? I'm going to say a few words about that in a minute, but these are the six truths that I pointed out two weeks ago, okay? So here's sermonette number one, all right? Or, rep, or repeating from two weeks ago. We looked at Jesus' life, and we saw that Jesus prayed as the regular habit of his life. He would, every morning, go out to a desolate place, or in the evening, go up on a mountain to pray, we saw that Jesus prayed before and after his public ministry that he would prepare himself and feed his soul by praying before going out among the crowds to minister. That's important. We saw that Jesus prayed all night before naming his 12 disciples. So he prayed for those that he would choose, including Judas, who would betray him. Jesus was determined to align his will with the Father's will by prayer. Jesus also prayed for his disciples to persevere. He prayed that his disciples would not lose faith and walk away once the shepherd was struck and the sheep would be scattered. That's one of my favorite parts of being in the Holy Land was being in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that Jesus prayed for me in that place. Number four, number five, sorry. Jesus prayed also before his arrest, trial, and crucifixion. As I mentioned, as the, after the Last Supper, he took his disciples out to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives to pray for the courage and strength he needed to drink the cup of God's wrath in our place. He prayed that the Father's will would be done no matter what. We'll look at that a little bit later. 
And finally, Jesus taught his disciples to pray. In Luke's account of this, I think it's very interesting that his disciples asked him to teach them to pray like he prayed. Jesus didn't, uh, his disciples, we have no recording of his disciples ever asking Jesus to teach them to preach or to teach them to cast out demons or to teach them to heal the sick. But no, what they wanted Jesus to teach them was how to pray as they had seen him pray throughout his entire life, watching his commitment to pray. They asked him to teach them to pray. And so, what we're going to be looking at this morning is Matthew's account of the model prayer. Now, I do think that it is, it is not a good name for, it's not a, the, the name of this prayer, is, it's not a good name to call it the model prayer. Now, I say that because Jesus prayed in this prayer that forgive us of our sins. That is something Jesus would never have had to pray for, okay? But I do think it is better called the disciples' prayer. This is the prayer that all of Jesus' disciples would use as a model going forward. So, just want to say that as we begin. So let's look, let's read the text. I'm going to read Matthew um, chapter 6, verses 5 through 13. And this is part of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus would have given many times, okay? And this is what Jesus says, beginning in Matthew 6, verse 5. He says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Now, I want us to look here. This is uh, the title of my sermon this morning is Teach Us to Pray Like Jesus. This is part two of, uh, this, of this section on praying. And so I want to just point out a couple of principles from this disciple's prayer that will help us hopefully learn to pray more like Jesus. That's the ultimate goal. We want to be more like Jesus our Lord, so we want to pray more like Jesus our Lord and pray more like Jesus our Lord. So let me pull out just a couple of principles here. I think I have four. Number one, notice here that Jesus teaches his disciples expecting them to pray. Jesus teaches his disciples expecting them to pray. Now, how do I know that? Look, at, look there at verse 5 and verse 7. Jesus begins in verse 5, he says, and when you pray. And then he says in verse 7, and when you pray. So notice that it is not if you pray, but when you pray. Jesus has an expectation built into this whole section that those who follow him as his disciples will be praying disciples. Jesus has no, under, no thought in his mind of a disciple who follows him that does not pray. Because he prays. 
And if we're going to be like our master, we must pray like our master. So in order to be like him, we must learn to pray. Because here's the truth. I'll say it as simply as I can. Without prayer, you cannot be like Jesus. You can write that down and think about that the rest of the day. Without prayer, I cannot be like Jesus. Without prayer, we cannot walk with him day by day in a relationship. Without prayer, we cannot align our lives with God's purposes. Without prayer, we cannot do these things. And so that's what I want to spend the rest of my sermon discussing. So the first point is Jesus teaches his disciples expecting them to pray. So take note, take that to heart, that if you claim to be a disciple of Jesus, then you must learn that he expects you to pray like him. Second, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray based on their intimacy with the Father. He expects you to pray based on a relationship that you have with the Father through him. Now this is an incredible thing. Look back at verses 5, five to 9 at what Jesus says here. Especially pick up in verse 6. He says, when you pray, again, when you pray, he says that in verse 5, verse 6, and verse 7. He says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father. You can circle that. Pray to your Father. Jesus is just saying, pray to my Father. He says, pray to your Father. And he says, and your Father, who is in secret, will reward you. And then go down to verse 8. He says, do not be like those hypocrites, those Gentiles. He says, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And then he says, pray like this, our Father who is in heaven. Notice how often here Jesus tells us to pray to your Father and to our Father. This is the language of family. This is the language of intimacy. This is the language of compassion and love. In fact, one of the great, one of the great struggles that all of the Jews around Jesus had was the way he spoke about God as being his Father. It's actually one of the reasons they tried to stone him one time because they said, you are calling your, you're, calling God, you're calling yourself the Son of God, making yourself equal to God. You're calling God your Father. We're going to kill you. But all throughout the New Testament, the record is clear that when we come to our Father through Jesus the Son, we have a new relationship with Him where He is our Father. He's not some distant, theistic God who is unmoved by our plight or unengaged with our daily struggles and hurts. No, He is a God who knows us and loves us and draws near to us and reveals Himself as Father. Not just Creator, though that is true. Not just sustainer of all of the universe, though that is true. Not just ruler and king, though that is true. Not just the sovereign Lord of all that is, of all that is though that is true. He draws near to us as Father. As a loving Father over His children. Full of compassion and mercy and care. Not simply judge. Though that is true, Jesus comes reminding us that we pray based on this relationship where we understand God, not just as all of those things, but as our Father. Now notice Jesus here also tells us some ways not to pray. He tells us there, don't pray to impress people. Isn't that what he says there in those verses? He says, he says don't pray to impress others like those like those rulers who want to pray in the synagogues and pray on the street corner so that everybody can see them. 
He says, though, these are those who are praying, um, these are those who are playing at prayer or praying for pretense. That means it's religious showmanship that isn't born out of humility towards God's holiness and graciousness. And Jesus tells us that instead of praying that way, you draw near to God as Father. Not out of pretense, but out of relationship. And then Jesus tells us, secondly, don't pray with empty phrases or meaningless repetition like the Gentiles who think they're heard because they just repeat the same thing over and over and over again. And the point is that God doesn't hear us simply because we repeat ourselves 50 times. It's not like an incantation or some kind of ritualistic, if I just say the magic words and I say them the right way and I say them with the right phrasing and I repeat them, then it's a magic key like rubbing a genie's bottle that's going to make God come and hear me. Jesus says don't pray like that. Notice how clear Jesus makes it in verse 8. He says do not be like them. Now, We've all seen this before, right? Just like I shouldn't tell my wife, I love you as a simple, as simply an empty phrase. Just, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. It's what I say at the end of all conversations or at the end of all things. You don't just say those as empty, meaningless phrases. It should come from a heart in a loving relationship. Now, a, a Jewish rabbi named Levi, he once said this quote. He says, whoever is long in prayer is heard. Is that what Jesus says? That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says that's not how we pray. Jesus says that he is wrong. Those who pray longest aren't necessarily those who pray best or most like Jesus. So some things should be prayed about often, but others need only be prayed about once because Jesus knows what we need even before we ask him. The issue isn't how, the issue here isn't in my sermon to make you want to go Pray for hours on end without stop, repeating the same phrases over and over again. No, no, no. I want to stir up in you a desire that's based on an intimate relationship with a Father who loves you and who will draw near to you if you draw near to Him. Not based on how well we speak. Not based on how well we have things together. Not based on how many theological phrases I can throw out there. Not based on how many repetitions I can say but based out of a desire and a heart who longs to be in relationship and fellowship with the Father. That is the point. Jesus teaches us to pray um, based on our intimacy with the Father. Third, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray for God's glory and purposes. Notice how Jesus says, he says, pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So notice the purposes here. The first purpose that we should be praying for. Jesus says, when you pray, pray that our Father in heaven, that his name be made holy in our lives. That's what hallowed be thy name means. It means that your name be revered and glorified and made holy in my life. In my life. This means that we are to live for the purpose of making God's name holy and glorious. That is part of how we should pray. This is the great end for which we were created. We were created to know and love 
Jesus forever. To be in a loving relationship with Him forever. We were created for His name, His renown, and His glory. There is no greater calling or purpose that is given among creatures than to live for the glory and praise of God. Notice the second purpose. We not only pray that God's name be made holy, we pray that God's kingdom should come and His will be done. This means that as we pray, like Jesus, that we direct our lives towards the coming of God's kingdom and the fulfillment of God's will in our lives. Now let me say a word here about God's kingdom, uh, just so, you can be, so, so I can be abundantly clear about it. God's kingdom isn't a geographical or political kingdom. So when I pray for God's kingdom to come, I'm not praying for a geopolitical nation state to arise on earth. Now, some Christians need to hear that. That's not what I'm praying for. That's not what God's kingdom is. This is the, king, this is the kingdom. When Jesus says, pray that God's kingdom come, this is the same kingdom that Jesus has been preaching about and saying is at hand with his presence as he preaches the gospel. So the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of Jesus in the hearts of his people. Wherever Jesus rules in the hearts of his people, the kingdom is present. So is God's kingdom present here this moment? Absolutely. God's kingdom is present wherever Jesus is ruling as king in the hearts of his people. So we should pray for God's kingdom to come. When I pray for God's kingdom to come, I am praying for Jesus to rule and reign in my heart as king, as Lord. That's what I'm praying for because wherever Jesus is present in the hearts of his people, his kingdom is present. And then Jesus and Jesus' people, his disciples, he says here, should pray for God's will to be carried out in the same way that his will is being carried out in heaven. God's will is being carried out in heaven exactly, precisely, every single moment. And I just want to remind you that this is how Jesus prayed himself. I, as I mentioned the Garden of Gethsemane earlier, in Mark 14, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to be arrested and about to be crucified. And this is what Mark records for us about Jesus praying in the Garden. It says, in going a little farther, Jesus fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father. Again, the language of intimacy, Abba, Dada. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So you see, even in Jesus' prayers, he is praying that his life, his physical life here on earth, would be aligned with God's eternal purposes, even if it means going to the cross and swallowing and drinking the cup of God's wrath. And that's why I want to remind you that as, as we are taught, we are, we are, Jesus is teaching us to pray for God's glory and purposes above our own, to give us perspective, to give us eternal perspective. And I'll remind you here that prayer doesn't change God. He's the same yesterday, day, and forever. God does not change. Prayer does not change God. Prayer changes us. Prayer changes us. It aligns our will with God's will. It allows us to humbly submit ourselves to God's good and glorious purposes. It brings heaven's perspective to bear 
on our temporary circumstances. And that's what we need. We need heaven's eternal perspective on, to, to be brought to bear on our temporary circumstances. Everything you go through in this life is temporary. Everything. Whether that be your life, your marriage, your relationship with your children, your career, your sports career, your hobbies, your job, your relationships, everything you touch, handle, taste, feel, engage in, it's all temporary. But we, because of our sinful propensities to hold tight and cling to things, we tend to think everything we put our hands on is eternal. And it will not change, or it will not be taken from us, or there will not be death, or there will not be sorrow, or there will not be heartache, or there will not be suffering, or there will not be persecution, or there will not be disease. This is why we pray this way. So that heaven's eternal perspective, that we were created for God's glory, Jesus has rescued us from our sins, and there will be coming a day when we spend eternity with Him, when there will not be any more sorrow or sickness or sadness anymore, that we can be prepared to stand before Him and His glory on that day. Jesus teaches us to pray for God's glory and purposes. And finally, Jesus teaches His disciples to pray for their daily needs and struggles. He teaches us to pray for our daily needs and struggles. Look at verses 11 through 13. Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Notice the development. Notice the stages of the disciples prayer. We pray vertically. For God's name, for God's glory, for God's honor, for God's purposes, aligning our will with God's will. We pray for His kingdom to come and His will to be done. And then, after we've aligned ourselves vertically with God's purposes, then the next phase of the disciples' prayer turns to our horizontal needs. And we have plenty, amen? We are needy strugglers. All of us. All of us. Daily needs and struggles galore. Some more than others. Some going through very difficult seasons right now. Some bearing heavy, heavy burdens. Some walking through delightful plush valleys where things are really good. But even that is temporary. We need daily provisions of food. For which we need to respond with gratitude. Give us this day our daily bread. Now sadly, in the rich United States, most of us have never had to pray for a meal. Just think back at your whole life. Have you ever had to pray for a meal? You might have prayed before a meal, but have you prayed for a meal? Just think back. In all of your life in the United States, have you ever had to pray for a meal? I never knew what this was like until I started visiting homeless shelters in the inner city. Or going overseas on short-term mission trips. But just because we are wealthy and affluent in the United States, that does not mean that most of Jesus' disciples throughout history have prayed differently than us. 
Because their daily needs have looked far differently than ours. This is a real section of this prayer for most of Jesus' disciples throughout history who were persecuted, walking through famine, the the outsiders of society, ostracized and persecuted. They are taught day by day to trust God for His daily provision, even for the basic necessity of food. But we also need daily grace and forgiveness. Not just for ourselves, but for others. We need to pray for forgiveness of our own trespasses as we, forgiving those who trespassed against us in the same way that we have been forgiven. That we have to extend the same gospel grace we have received towards others who are also undeserving. And when Jesus teaches us that we are to pray for daily strength to face the temptations that are going to come our way each day. Some of us don't have the spiritual strength to stand in the midst of temptation because we never think we need the daily strength to stand in the midst of temptation. Jesus says, pray that God would lead, that we would not be led into temptation, but delivered from it and through it. Now, here's the point here. Prayer is the acknowledgement that we are dependent upon God moment by moment, day by day, Second by second. And here's the main principle here that I want you to soak in. Prayerlessness is faithlessness. I want you to think about that for a second. In your own life, prayerlessness is faithlessness. That's what it is. Anything we don't pray about we are saying that we are self-sufficient for. Whether that be as simple as my meals each morning, the breath in my lungs, the health by which I maneuver, the skills by which I apply my trade, the relationships that I maintain, the children that I have, the grandchildren that I have, all of those things are gifts of God's grace And we are saying when we are prayerless, we are saying that we are God, that I provide for myself, and that is the danger of prayerlessness. Now as I close, I want to give you the good news though. I want to give you the good news from God's word to strengthen our faith and encourage praying. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 7. Peter writes and he says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. So why can I draw near to to our Father in prayer? Why can I cast my cares and my anxieties and and my struggles on him day by day? And the answer is because of the gospel I know that he cares for me. He proved that by Jesus dying on the cross and rising again 2,000 years ago. I can cast my cares on him because he cares for me. And I want to remind you here that Peter's simply quoting from Psalm 55, 22 that says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. Cast your burdens on the Lord because he will sustain you. And listen to what James promises to encourage prayer. James promises this. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That is the promise to encourage praying That when I draw near to the Father through Jesus, He will draw near to me. And Hebrews says this, Hebrews 4 promises this. He says, we do not have a high priest 
who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then draw, with, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in the time of need. We can cast our cares because He cares for us. We can draw near because He promises to draw near to us. And we have a high priest whose name is Jesus. Who sympathizes with our weaknesses. Who knows our struggles. And He is standing with open arms and an attentive ear. He said, my ear is not too dull to hear. My arm is not too short to save. Come and draw near to me. And if we're going to be more like Jesus, then we will take that to heart. We will learn to pray like Jesus. I'd encourage you to take up the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms, is God, those are God's inspired prayers preserved for His people. That is the prayer book Jesus used to learn how to weep, to learn how to lament, to learn how to rejoice, to learn how to worship, to learn how to pray. I hope you will take the time to do that as well. Now I want to pray for us as I wrap this up. We're going to move into a time of invitation after I pray. The first part of the invitation will be for believers. Are you drawing near to God? Are you learning to pray like Jesus? Are you employing the spiritual habits that are given to us so that we can walk in intimacy with the Father? I encourage you to make that a commitment of your life by God's grace to learn to pray like Christ, to be more like Christ. And then the other part of the invitation for those that might not even know Jesus. You see, the great hope of the gospel is not that I'm good, because I'm not. It's not that I can do the right things, because I can't. It's not that I have any righteousness in myself, because I don't. The great hope of the gospel is that Jesus, the Son of God, came and lived a perfect life that I could not live. And he died a death that I deserved. He went to the cross to, pay, to take the punishment I deserve for my sins so that I could be saved not by my goodness, but by his grace. That is the greatest hope any of us could ever have, is that we can be made right with God, not because we can do the right thing, because we're not, we're sinners all, we are broken all, we are strugglers all but that we have a loving Savior who has come as our advocate, as our representative, to rescue us, to redeem us, to adopt us into His family, not because we deserve it, but because He is gracious and kind. That is the only hope any of us have. And I'm more convinced of that every day I live, because let me tell you, this guy right here is a stupid struggler. I'm even beyond just struggling. My only hope is Jesus. And if you don't know the hope of Jesus, we invite you to come to Him by repentance and faith to receive forgiveness of sins in His name, to be given a new heart, to have your sins forgiven, to be given Christ's righteousness, to be welcomed among God's people as a saint. Not because you are one, but because Jesus says so. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that you would bless our time together as we've opened your word. And Lord, may we all learn to draw near to you in prayer, casting our cares upon you, walking in repentance, walking by the Spirit, Father, engaging you, Lord, as your word has instructed us. And so, Father, we ask now that you would bless your people and draw near to us as we draw near to you. We pray this in Jesus' name.